0: Welcome to this special episode of The Partial Historians. I'm Dr Rad, and normally Dr G and I discuss the history of Rome from the founding of the city, but today we begin a deep dive into Quo in 1951. We ended up talking for so long about this epic that we have split the episode into two parts. Seems appropriate, given that the original film had an intermission. This is part two of our coverage of Quo Vardis, in which we will focus more on our analysis of the film and its portrayal of history. We hope you enjoy this sword and sandal classic as much as we did. So in our previous episode, we've covered the background and plot to Quo Dr. G. Let's now try and get a little bit more analytical and delve into the film in more detail. So I'm going to change gears a little bit, Dr. G, because I feel like I've had enough Nero for a moment. So first of all, I'm going to mention something which I have mentioned before when we've been talking about these films like The Robe and Demetrius and the Gladiators. We have to think about why Quo why now? <laughs> and that is very much
1: to do with... The threat of a television oh uh, yes how dare they don't yeah. watch things on the small screen when you could watch things on the big screen yes so as we talked about before the 1950s is going to be the
0: era of the widescreen technology that is officially however launched with the robe in 1953 now Quo Vadis is a large scale film in the sense that it's long it's saturated with color and Excess—it's the kind of thing that you're not going to get on a small square black and white screen in your suburban home. So it is the kind of film that Hollywood believes is going to encourage people to come to the movies, and they're right (laughs) because they're really running scared. Because it's not just television, as I am sure I have again mentioned before. It's also the fact that they had lost a lot of power in 1948 with the anti-monopoly laws, where they the, the movies used to control everything. You know from the production of the film to the editing to the distribution. And Monopoly Laws of 1948 means that they lose their grip on the distribution. Oh, no. Yeah, and so that's a significant chunk of their business. They're reeling. You know, it's only a few years later, and this has been the model for quite some time. So they want movies like Quervatus, which they feel sure are going to get people to come and watch them because that's how they're going to make their money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a bit of the movie business stuff. Now, specifically the context of the 1951 film. Being one of the earliest Swords and Sander films, I need to throw this at you World War II.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's definitely a thing. (laughs) (laughs) It is. I mean, it's over by the time we get to this film. It is. And, like, they must be filming, I guess, in 1950. So we're not far out. I was kind of surprised, but also, like, pleasantly surprised by just, like, it's all on location in Cina Cheetah*. It is. And you can see from the shots in and around when they're doing sort of, like, chariot work and things like that. Yep. They're definitely in chariot Italy. Thing. Yeah, sorry, like that. <laughs> like, they're doing chariot work. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you've got Mediterranean Pines. Yes. Like, they're definitely in the right place. They're yep. on location. Yeah, definitely. It's pretty impressive.
0: Yeah. I mean, look. There are often parallels drawn between Roman emperors and the dictators of the 20th century. However, this film, I think more than most, was, I think, trying to lean on that, okay? I think that it's meant to be a bit of a weird blend of both, like, Mussolini the fascists and also the Nazis that we see here, because the Nazis, of course, had been very anti-religion, so I think you can kind of see the persecution of Christianity that's happening here and the the seeming decadence of Rome as being, you know, tying into that a little bit. But also, of course, Mussolini himself had tried really hard to draw a connection between his Rome and the Rome of the ancients. (laughs) How awkwardly yeah. phrased was that <laughs> the <laughs> um, ancient romans the and the romans. modern
1: yeah. italy were to, yeah
0: yeah to the point where he put on an exhibit in 1937 called the Augustan exhibition of the roman spirit um, so he was really dwelling on that and china cheetah of course also had been constructed by mussolini so there are some interesting parallels there Obviously, there's a lot of Roman symbolism, which the fascists use, like the Eagles, the Fasces, and they think the salute, although that's been pretty much debunked by Martin Winkler as being a bit of a, a misunderstanding. <laughs>
1: yeah, but the yeah. Roman salute that's given in this film yes. is visually resonant. Like, There wouldn't be many audience members who, who hadn't seen some Nazi propaganda who yes. wouldn't be like, oh always see what you did there yes exactly yes
0: and there's also a very clear accent divide as often is the case in these films we've talked about so a lot of the heroic christian freedom fighting liberty loving characters are american what i know (laughs) and the evil people evil imperialist bastards are british so of course we have peter ustinov playing or very memorably playing the role of Nero whereas we've got people like Robert Taylor very American um, playing the heroic person now I know he is a Roman character but we know he's all he's <laughs> gonna be on the side of the Christian so
1: you can tell yeah. from his accent that he's gonna switch sides exactly exactly
0: <laughs> and then the plan that Nero outlines the way that he says he's going to kill all the Christians is very Hitler-esque in that he says he's going to eradicate them from the face of the earth to the extent where people will doubt they ever existed. Yeah. Yeah, which is creepily like a genocidal plan. And also the model of Rome that you mentioned. So, you know, you said that Nero was going to burn Rome to the ground and rebuild it. Well,
1: there is a model displayed in this film. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And the
0: shot of Nero standing over it, I think, was very much meant to recall shots of Hitler looking at Albert Speer's plan for Germania.
1: Oh, interesting. Like the new Berlin. Because I was really interested in the map of Rome itself because I was like, there there is a map, there is a 3D map of Rome. Right, yes. That looks very much like this model, and I'm wondering if it's the same one. And I haven't been able to – I haven't had enough time to look into that myself. No, you know, I actually probably – could have found the answer for you if I had known beforehand, but I forgot to check that out. (laughs) But I'm fascinated, so I'm going to keep uh, investigating that.
0: Yeah, and there are all these lines that Nero delivers throughout the film, which I think are really playing on those Hitler-esque sort of things. Like he says to Petronius at one point, the world is mine and mine to end. (laughs) Oh, yeah, You know. Um, And also we know that he is someone who has you know murdered his own mother um so we already know that he is a monster and therefore he from the beginning comes across as a tyrant like he's obviously very amusing because it's peter used <laughs> but
1: he is meant to be a monster but i think there is something amazingly believable about yustonov's performance though which oh yeah which yeah. makes this film stand out as opposed to some others where the imperial figure is designed to be the ultimate bad guy yeah but yeah. is played in such a way as to not make it sympathetic enough for yes. you to believe that, that a real human could be that way yeah whereas yeah. something about Ustinov's performance is very naturalistic in the way that you like you can you get the sense that this is a mind that is malleable and that, that he has particular drives and he's trying to figure out how to best bring them to life. Yes. And he doesn't conceive of himself as evil. He conceives no. of himself as misunderstood.
0: Yeah, and also that idea of him having to be like on a larger scale, again, is almost Nazi-like, you know. Yeah, in, in well, way. and he sees
1: himself as removed from the common people in part because the position that he has to fulfil. He's like, yes. as emperor, I have this kind of duty to be very different from everyone else. So he talks yes. a lot about how things have to be uncommon.
0: Yes, I was going to say, I actually have the exact quote <laughs> because I think it's such a good one. Peter not says, I seek because I must exceed the stature of man in both good and good and evil i seek because i must be greater than man for only then will i be the supreme artist let it be wonderful or let it be awful so long as it is uncommon
1: yeah it's kind of, <laughs> this is incredible sort of rationale in that yeah, yeah which yeah. is i think if it was just read off the script it might not – you might not buy it. Yes. It's like it's very much the performance of Yusnov that brings that. He is that. a standout yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. His,
0: his performance stands the test of time, which you can't always say about these certain sandal films. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the whole idea and the way that the other characters talk about the Christians, like Popeye saying – Give Rome not one victim, but hundreds. Who are these people? They despise our temple and our gods. They prophesy that the end of the world shall be caused by fire. Well, then, let it come true. Let it end for them. Like, it is that kind of idea of like scapegoating people, just like. The Nazis do with the Jews like it's it's all very creepily there yeah I think and also then you've got Petronius coming in of course and being the the warning of history you do this you make the martyrs and you will suffer for it which of course is exactly what has happened in Nero. he has a particularly bad reputation <laughs> because I think he has been seen as like the Antichrist or at, at, at the very least an enemy of the Christian people which for You know, subsequent civilizations which pride themselves on being Christian doesn't make you a good guy. Now, gender is something I thought you might like to talk about a little bit. Ooh. Yeah, and that also ties in with World War II. So... Tell me, what do you know about (laughs) women's role during World War II? Oh,
1: women's roles in World War II. Well, (laughs) my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that because the men were away fighting, it was incumbent upon women to really get behind the war effort in ways in which they possibly wouldn't have been the first in line for if this was a non-war time. So you have this shift of women into the workforce in different ways. It's not the case that women weren't working before the war. They definitely were. But the kinds of jobs that women were asked to do or put themselves forward to do because the labor was needed, it was now all across the board. Yeah. And it was kind of like if it had to be done, it had to be done. And yes. so, you know, the pictures of women on factory lines was – not something that people were used to, but it's something that definitely happened during the war, for instance. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And that's exactly how we need to see these sorts of films, and Quo is no exception. This idea that women had stepped up, gone into these roles, which were unusual, but now the men were back. Back to the private sphere with you, missy. Oh, no. Yeah. So <laughs> it's this idea of, I think, woman as domesticator, the need to have stable families. So Romans very rarely in the 1950s and early 1960s have stable family lives. They're generally somehow twisted. Like, for example, murdering your mother like Nero does or killing your wife as Nero does. It's the kind of, you know, the cheating, the adultery. It's all that kind of stuff that the Romans partake in. And it's this idea that, well, the the core of 1950s America has to be proper christian religious sentiment family and domesticating femininity mm. and i am quoting directly from someone who i will reference in our sources <laughs>
1: <Pretty sure laughs> uh, that was domesticating travel, but, yeah. femininity yeah absolutely. yeah
0: so good women are shown as domesticating influences i see yeah and they need to find someone to pair up with and convert
1: well 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 lydia uh step forward <laughs> Yes, exactly. Ligia
0: <laughs> is obviously classic. She's an entirely fictional character, obviously, for all the Quoamada's adaptations. The interesting thing is, though, that there is a bit of a remnant of those women that didn't want to go back into the private sphere after World War II with Ligia because in the 1950s version, she has moments of being kind of feisty and knowing her own mind, which in the novel she is not. She's entirely passive. Oh, interesting. Yeah, she just does what she's told to do by either her parents, her adoptive parents... Or Vinicius or whatever. She's really
1: just like a chess piece to be moved around. It's about possessing her, obviously. Okay. Yeah. So she's been slightly rewritten for the 1950s audience.
0: I think so, yeah. Like they, they know that you don't want someone who's a complete pushover. Mm-mm. But the values that she stands for are nonetheless like
1: Well, yeah. actually, this kind of makes sense. So she gets accused of like, you know, feeling ahead with philosophies and things like that. Yes. Why would you do something like that? But that's also thinking kind of, gives you wrinkles. Yeah, well, it's kind of also the thing that happens to you you have this sort of like narrative of the 1950s and particularly in america where it's like sure by all means go to a good school and get an education but like your number one priority is to settle down with a husband and have some children yes so like by all means get that degree but heaven forfend if you would attempt to use it
0: yes for anyone who wants to get a vibe for what judge g is talking about smile smiles excellent at showing that also, <laughs> Mad Men, which I know is very true. old now, yeah, no, but true. I still love it. Yeah, yeah, no, true, true, true. Um, now, bad women, of course, are the kind of women that want public
1: power. Oh, okay. I love Pompeia in this film, though. Yes, so yes. you know she enters with two cheaters on a leash. I know, I know, I know. It's like that oh. girl, table of one. I was like, <laughs> glorious. Yeah. And you know, it's like it's all the makeup, it's the dress, it's the it's the sultry. Gay Gaze. It's the one of the things that I noticed from a cine, cinematography perspective. Yeah, is that Lygia is tends to be always shot on the three quarters, ah.
0: so you don't get
1: front on shots. Because I was like, "What is it? I just want to know what Deborah Kerr's nose is like from the front." <laughs> you know, but I, I, I you'll have to watch an affair to remember to get that. <laughs> I definitely, I didn't get it in this film. But Poppea is often shot front on. Yeah. And there's a real, so there is choices being made artistically about how these women are shown. Yeah. And the angles that you get of them to sort of set them apart from each other as well. Because Popea is front and center next to Nero in public. Yep. But also somebody who is given space to be a decision maker about certain things. Yeah. So she does make decisions publicly yes and people just go along with it yeah yeah. and it's not like she defers to Nero when she does that no and this is exactly it she's meant to be obviously showing look this is what
0: happens when not only women want public power but when they get it it's terrible they don't know how to exercise it properly they should be focusing on being Wives she and mothers. She does, guys. though. She's yeah. like Venetius. Get over here now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. yeah, but this is you know what? this is the thing about Papaya Sabina. So Papaya Sabina is a real person, obviously, like Nero, or she was a real person. I should say she is a historical figure. She is a historical figure, and I feel terrible that she always comes across so badly because she's a murder victim, guys. She's a victim of domestic violence. Yeah, what really happens to her is that Nero supposedly loses his temper. And kicks her. Kicks her in the stomach while, while she's, she's pregnant, pregnant with their child. And she dies because of complications to do with that injury. I mean, that is a bad way to go. Now, look, the sources are not kind to Papaya Sabina either. So I'm not saying there's not some basis. I think I think Sinclair did his research. Hmm. You know, I think he read up about this. And I think the best way to sum this up is this little line from Tacitus. This is what he says about Papaya. She was a woman possessed of all advantages but a character. Oh, snap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so he goes on and on about how awful she is and that she's beautiful and she's witty, but she is depraved and gives in into luxury and she sleeps around and all that kind of stuff. So, look... All of that may be true, whatever, I get it. It's not what the Romans are looking for in wives either. But part of me also wonders how much of this has been exaggerated because Nero's a bad guy. And we know that when you've got a bad guy, he must be not controlling his woman properly, his household's, you know, in disarray, he'll be associated
1: with a woman who has all the stereotypical bad qualities. Yeah, this becomes part of the political invective that you level against the emperor. Exactly, yes. And so part of the way that you bring him down is to bring down everybody who is connected with him. So there is no way – it's very tricky, I think, for somebody like Papaya Sabina to come out well from this, particularly when – the previous wife, Octavia, mm, so has, yeah. had, was so publicly popular. So people, even in the historical record, following Nero aren't willing to openly criticise her because, by comparison, she was the bee's knees. Yeah, and and in all the ways that, well, for all the
0: reasons that Nero apparently finds her boring, was that she was. Loyal, dutiful, quiet, just went about her business, like in private, not in public, you know, no ambition, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, anyway, look, I just thought I had to mention that. So, there's a bit of like World War II gender stuff going on. Also, for the men, I think it's no accident. Again, we often talk about the issues with masculinity that are shown on screen in these sorts of movies. And I think it's no accident that. Peter Ustinov's Nero is highly effeminate mm. in the way that he's played, whereas Robert Taylor, our hero, super masculine. Mm. Yeah, willing to be domesticated. So it's kind of almost like how the soldiers come home from World War II and the woman's like leaving military crap at the door. You know, you're entering the domestic sphere now, baby. <laughs> it's all about you know pumping out the little ones and putting up white picket fences.
1: Um, and there is a moment yeah. later on in the film where Vinicius kind of has a realisation that he was being pretty boorish at the start of the film. Yes, exactly. exactly <laughs> so yes. there is a sense in which that narrative is being perpetuated and they've sort of put him into a bit of a domesticated situation and he's agreed to go along with it because, well, you know, Lycia, she's just so freaking hot. Yeah. <laughs> Debra Carr, as in star. Um,
0: okay, so the other bit of context that we have to mention, and I think I know we mentioned this with all these sorts of movies, is of course another war, Dr. G, but the Cold War. This ah, time.
1: Yeah. Feel that shiver in the room? <laughs> it's not getting hot in here. I'm putting on more clothes even as we speak. Yeah, now I'm just going to
0: very briefly mention that, of course, you've got the classic freedom versus tyranny dichotomy going on in this film which is exactly how president truman had explained the situation that america found itself in 1947 so it's no accident and of course in 1950 when quo was being shot as you mentioned this is where we see the ramping up of the anti-communist crusades within america the second red scare 1947 had been the first round That was where we had the Hollywood Ten, people like Dalton Trumbo being up on trial. But because they did string out their defense for such a long period of time, it had put everything on pause. Mm -hmm. And so no one else had really been charged. But 1951 is when we're really going to see that whole more classic, I think, better known part of the second Red Scare taking place, which is where you see a lot of people go down. You see a lot of people doing the whole naming names or not naming names. Ah, yes. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, on naming names, I mean, that feeds in quite nicely to ideas about the Della in ancient Rome. But mm. also there is – this film does a very good job of having the people, which could be construed through a communist lens if you wanted to, yeah, really quite far removed from anything that's going on. Yes. They're kind of yeah. – they're at the peripheral, and we only see them through the perspective of Nero – and, and essentially like yeah, yeah they're a mob and again i think that's meant to be very mussolini and
0: hitler-esque
1: yeah yeah uh but any there's no focus on like farming or like the idea of a <laughs> farming. like well a quasi-proletariat that, sort oh, of right. emerges, <laughs> that emerges out of the agrarian society you know all of those sort of like classic elements of yeah that, that could build a foundation for a a Communist narrative gotcha. within the yeah, yeah, yeah. Christian narrative. Yeah, oh, look, none of that's happening in they this. They were
0: very self-conscious about it. The 1951 campaign book for Quo Vadis said this movie, the fact that it was being made, it's basically like the world could well use the message of Quo in the dark days that are threatening us. The storyline cries out a creed of non-violence and a just resistance to a godless aggression. Take that, Stalin. No. Yeah. So whilst Whilst Nero is meant to be somewhat, I think, Mussolini and Hitler-esque, there's also the Stalin-Soviet <laughs> things happening.
1: Uh, take a bad guy, put your Nero on stage, and you're done and dusted. Yeah, and again,
0: again very briefly going to mention, of course this comes back to a, the fact as well that religion in this time period for America, it's a patriotic thing. It's about American godliness triumphing over the godless communists.
1: Yeah, it is one of these really interesting characteristics of 20th century America where uh, the there's a tacit freedom of religion like it or maybe even a spoken freedom of religion, but when they embrace religion, it is very much a very particular type of Christianity. Mm. And that Christian symbolism is imbued into a lot of their public symbolism. Yeah. So, and yeah. I think
0: I think it's also worth mentioning with Quo in particular mm-hmm. that Robert Taylor and Louis B. Mayer, who was the MGM chief executive, and MGM made this film were both friendly witnesses, which basically means that they volunteered their information and were very cooperative in supplying details about the inner workings of Hollywood for the committee. And they both had got involved with HUAC and testified really early on in 1947. He's not so good-looking to me now. I know. So Robert Taylor, (laughs) I'm going to tell you a little bit about Robert Taylor. Yeah, please do. So he was part of this right-wing group called the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. (laughs) <laughs> what a mouthful <laughs> they had been the ones that had actually invited the house of american activities to come to hollywood and investigate hollywood specifically because they were worried about this communist propaganda and communists wow. working in the industry so robert taylor is a part of this mm-hmm. okay now louis b Mayer, i kind of feel like he's one of those guys i've talked about in a previous episode where i think he's just concerned about like protecting his Business. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) Things have gotta run, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Now Rob Taylor was married to Barbara Stanwick. Okay. Now they shared
1: an interest in conservative politics. Well, I mean it's a solid foundation for a marriage, I suspect.
0: Yeah. He's the only big studio star to name names in an open session to Hueck. Wow. Yeah. And they used his initial testimony to publicize. Huac and Robert Taylor had no idea that this was going to happen. He was furious about this. Basically like basically didn't did that ruin ta- his career? No, but I don't think I don't think he's a well-known name now, let's put it that mm. way. Yeah. Certainly he just wants out of politics mm. after this, but he kind of has no choice because he is a studio star and MGM yeah. is like you are going to testify. They specifically want him to testify in order to present a strong front with Mayer about this film they had made called The Song of Russia. Now that was made at the time when the alliance between the Allies and Russia was first
1: being formed to try and, you know, promote this, you know, during World War II. So he's got a vested interest in perhaps coming forward and coming forward openly in order to counterbalance some of that. I think he was incredibly reluctant to name names and yet he is kind of forced
0: into it. The sad thing is that his appearance was a massive deal, and it's possible that these 1950s Hugh hearings became a big deal because of Robert Taylor, because he was a big star at the time.
1: Wow, wow. Yeah.
0: So I just thought that was worth noting because yes. whilst, whilst we've talked about some of the other Cold War connections to some of the other films, the fact that this one comes about at this particular time with these
1: particular people. Yeah, really, really interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, we're talking about 1951 hearings. That would have yeah. obviously been the year of release of Quo Vadis, but yeah, it would have yeah. been filmed before then. But I think everyone obviously knew that Ack was in, sen- in their midst because of the Hollywood Ten. so... Yeah.
1: yeah, it's not necessarily something that's clouding the performance of actors in this film with each other, mm. but it's definitely going to have an effect after. I Yeah, I just I just think
0: it's... It, yeah, it makes, I think, Cuevart even more interesting to me contextually, like knowing yeah, yeah. this kind of stuff. And I, I kind of feel sorry for it, Taylor in a way that, you know, you wouldn't expect me to necessarily because I hate people who name names. <laughs> I hate people who are on the right-wing politics now. I shouldn't say that. I hate right-wing politics. But, yeah, I kind of feel like his... He, he's often a person you'll see as you'll hear like a sound bite from him or you'll see an image of him testifying and you don't necessarily have the nuance of exactly how his appearance came to be in front of Hueck mm. and exactly how he was used.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because it, it seems like something he would do, but and, and I'm not saying, <laughs> but there might be some more complicated. I think factors. there's some more there. complicating yeah. factors there. So yeah, I just thought that was interesting given him being the title role
1: and all. So mm-hmm. yeah. Anywho, you want to talk about Nero? <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, Nero. Yeah. Look, I mean, there's a lot of things that you could say about Nero in this film. And, I, I mean, I've said some of those things already sure. in terms of, like, the performance and stuff like that. I think this is the kind of film, it's of the same sort of stature in my mind as something like I, Claudius, in the way that it kind of sets people up to think that there is a very simple read for this period of Rome's history. totally, yep. And it's because the performance is so good. Yeah. And because the things that happened, some of these events are verifiable. There yep. was a fire in Rome. Totally. It did happen during the late period of Nero's reign. It did. He did have a rebuilding program. There are some sources. That- Which benefited him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. There are some sources that talk about his connection with the Christians. Yes. The- All of that is true yes now this narrative this particular film makes it seem like there that is a really smooth story that we can understand Nero and his reign and how it comes to an end yeah and I would urge you as a human with an interest in history to keep in mind that this is a film and it is so persuasive Mm. but There are some real questions to be asked about the source material for this period and what they might be trying to do with Nero. He is the last of the Julio Claudians. This is an end point in the first dynasty of Roman imperial power. Yeah. It has ended badly... There's lots of good reasons for it ending badly, and there are a lot of people with their noses out of joint by the way that the Julia Claudians have developed over time. Mm. So there's lots of people in a position to write really negative histories as well. And that's some of the source material that has survived and come down to us. Yes. Does this mean that he was terrible and all bad? (laughs) Probably not. But the stories that we do have are pretty horrifying. I don't think I'm not going to excuse things like domestic violence, which leads to complications of a pregnancy, which leads to death. Mm. You know, all of that is terrible. But this film does make it an easy package to swallow and just be like, Nero was this crazy, manipulative human being and we that's all we can say about him.
0: Yeah, and I completely agree because this is the thing. I agree with you. I don't think Nero probably was a great person. Let's face it. He grew up with a mother who was probably quite rightly traumatized and paranoid. He grew up in a family that was even worse. And he was only a teenager when he came to power. And. Whilst teenagers weren't really a thing in ancient Rome, I certainly don't think his brain was fully mature. Well, they
1: do have a classification for the young man that's or the true. young yes, person, the true. outer lessons, which yes. teenager sort of comes out of that. That's true. And yeah. that, that is a period that goes up to the age of 25. Yes. Is that, so that's what I mean. The they Romans do see know them as quite, youth equals trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They do see them as youthful and they, they position them as such. And certainly all of the... Uh, Republican positions are set up to be open and available to people who are beyond that age group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But
0: this is exactly it. I, I think, yes, I think Nero was a problematic person. I think some of the stuff that's come down to us is most likely true like the fact that he was behind the murder of Agrippina and that he probably was responsible for the death of uh, Octavia and Papaya Sabina it's just good politics isn't it yeah, yeah gotta exactly. get rid of them rivals <laughs> yeah however as you said there is this intriguing snippet from Josephus where he says there had been a great many who composed the history of Nero some of which have departed from the truth of facts out of favor as having received benefits from him, while others, out of hatred to him and the great ill will which they bear him, have so impudently raved against him with their lies that they justly deserve to be condemned. So seeming to imply that there were positive accounts out there, they weren't necessarily any more trustworthy, but they were there, and like the fact that none of this seems to have come down to us is staggering. So definitely I think there were some people who were more in favour of Nero, The people of Rome seem to have been a bit more fond of Nero than I think the elite of Rome were.
1: Yeah, and this is something that the film tends not to capture. Yes. Is he does seem to have been quite well loved for most of his rule by the people of the city, not necessarily the elites, but like the man on the street kind of thing. Yes. And definitely his rebuilding program or post-fire. Yes does a lot of sort of accommodation of people who have lost their homes and things like that. So there are elements of good leadership mixed in amongst the, the horror yeah. stories and yeah, the I political think, mayhem. I think
0: he was basically a very selfish person, which is no big surprise and not particularly dedicated to rule at a time when Rome really needed him And to also be. somebody who's yeah.
1: probably not that trusting, no. given the situation that he's grown up in and yeah. been surrounded by his whole life. So, you know, somebody who is naturally suspicious. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, his, his own father
0: <laughs> supposedly ran over children in the street just for kicks. So... Yeah, but again, you don't know whether that's actually true or whether that's just trying to trash talk his reputation because Nero turned out to be so horrible. But again, you've got to wonder, like, it has to come from somewhere. But definitely I think it's worth mentioning when we talk about a film like Vadis*. our sources are actually fairly clear, I think, at least in terms of reliable sources, that Nero was not responsible for the fire
1: no, uh, the evidence suggests he wasn't in Rome. So the film does get that right. That's Interestingly. true. That's true. Yeah. yeah he's, he's, in not it. he's not personally responsible. He didn't. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't there, like, you know, with a little uh, match, throwing it onto the bonfire yeah, and be exactly. like, muh-ha, muh-ha. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he wasn't there. So it seems unlikely also, oh, despite the fact that there's this building program afterwards, I don't think there are many people who would believe that they, he anticipated the fire or created the fire in order to produce this building work. Yeah, like, I there's agree. plenty of space already if he buys up private property on the Palatine to do the kinds of things he wants to do. Yeah, again, I think he's just a bit selfish in the way he goes about some of the rebuilding and therefore
0: it makes people suspicious, which does make him turn to the Christians as scapegoats. Like, that's one thing that, yes, you can say, yep, nero deserves to be blamed for that again the sources i think are fairly clear that he does pinpoint the christians as a group that he can target because nobody cares about them
1: yeah Yeah. and this is political
0: expedience at its worst yes exactly (laughs) although he's so horrible to them i mean i believe one of the punishments is that and again it's kind of like that poetic justice things that the romans like every now and then he lights the city of Rome by setting the
1: Christians on fire. Oh, yeah. So, like, this is, like, the classic source reference where it's, like, you know, he lights up Rome with Christians' bodies. Yes. Yeah, and that's pretty disgusting, if true.
0: Exactly. Like, it could be exaggeration, of course, or whatever, but certainly the idea that people, I think – tacitus says look nobody really cared about the christians until nero started to persecute them so horribly and They're then like, people started to feel a little well then people started to go mm, that is really awful even by our standards so i don't think they were like oh we love the christians but it's more the idea of people started to feel even more sim- Well, people started to feel sympathetic well
1: they suddenly registered that these people were around being like yeah. oh i didn't know that they were here but and that they were really copying it yeah <laughs> that doesn't seem okay yeah definitely
0: so I thought one final thing I might end on. So I know this is a very long episode, but it's such a long movie. It's so hard not to just like... <laughs>
1: We're not even up to the halfway point of the film yet. We I, can... <laughs> know, I know.
0: I thought we had to also maybe register maybe Petronius as a real figure. And I also wanted to highlight Lygia's adoptive mother, Pomponia Gracia. Oh, I haven't looked into her. Well, okay, there is actually a passage about her. She was loosely connected to the Julio Claudians. Like she's not super, she's not like in the inner circle, but as more of them die, her connection probably becomes more significant. She actually does seem to have been rumored to be a Christian. There is a passage preserved in Tacitus which talks about her being accused of a alien superstition which has been taken to mean Christianity and that having to be dealt with in like a private family disciplinary sort of way. I feel like this is a testament to our original author's research surely. I know, and so I just thought I thought it was worth mentioning that because we've said some stuff about other female characters and you might not think that she actually is based on a real person. Yeah, I just assumed that she was made up for the film. No, no, she's not. <laughs> and, and, and also she apparently very publicly wore mourning as a statement when one of her relatives, a female that Messalina was jealous of, was bumped off. So she was kind of like okay. daring, you know, but Claudius refused to punish her for obviously making like – a bit of a statement about Messalina's behaviour and what she Mm -mm. was doing. So she's kind of an interesting character. Um, And the way that she has been represented in different versions is quite different. Like if you go back to the 1925 version, I think that's where you see more of a storyline about her being caught up in persecution and managing to escape through her mother's love because her child is like about to watch her be executed. And again, that seems maybe a little bit tying into like the fascist ideology about motherhood and like... You know, passionate mm-hmm. so, wanted to mention her, but also Petronius. I thought he was uh, maybe a fun note to end on. <laughs> yeah,
1: look, Petronius. I mean, he is—he is a figure that gets sort of like bandied about in this period, but because he's lampooned, mm. and, and to see Petronius uh, brought to life in a way that is quite intelligent, quite serious, but then being there's there's kind of like a visual homage. Uh, yes. to the satire that he is generally known for in the final feast yes. um, which i quite enjoyed and i was like oh well this is where it gets dramatic yeah, we isn't it? think he might have been the author of this work which we now call the satirican
0: mm. which is a bizarre <laughs> work yeah. and we don't have it in its complete form of course we never do but one of as you say like the key moments is like the feast yes. at the house of trimalchio who i think is a freedman right
1: and I he's can't meant remember.
0: To, okay, yeah. He's me, but he's meant to be this, like, lower-class person who's aping the upper classes yeah, now yeah. that he's got money. <laughs> he's and, really trying. He's aspirational. Yeah, and so Trimalchio <laughs> is supposedly partly meant to be inspired by Nero, which is yeah. maybe one of the reasons why Petraeus found himself in hot water. In that <laughs> Yeah, because he does end up getting caught up in these conspiracies in Nero's reign as far as we can tell, like, the real historical character so i think it's it is interesting the way that he as you say is turned into
1: like kind of like the conscience weird like like a weird Yeah, conscience. he yeah. kind of becomes this figure that nero bounces off and and petronius provides this opportunity just just to gently nudge him in a slightly different direction
0: yeah and he does have like the real petronius did have official positions as would befit a man of his status you know he does serve as consul and that sort of thing and he apparently had this title amongst nero's inner circle that he was the arbiter of elegance which i think has been very much played upon in this (laughs) particular adaptation he's not always as likable because there is this whole uh, another subplot romance between him and one of his slave girls eunice oh yes yeah Mm. and and in this film it's kind of why is that subplot even there oh well it gets it's a lot more disturbing in other versions okay in some versions i can't remember which one but there's a version where apparently he orders eunice to be beaten for something she's done wrong and it's while she's being beaten that he realizes he's in love
1: with her too Oh. yeah because the
0: whole storyline is that Eunice is in love with him to a point that is like deranged yeah,
1: yeah this is I mean the Eunice subplot I mean doesn't make any sense I'm like again this is one of those Struck sort of a novel yeah yeah, and it's <laughs> one of these sort of classic like it it's there's no women in the writer's room you know yeah and it's like they're under what circumstances would a slave just be like kissing the statue of the oh, of of their owner i know and, I and know. it's like there's we're giving no rationale for why she might be interested in him no apart from the fact that he seems to
0: be like super intelligent um, but, but she it's, doesn't it's,
1: it's weird as you say, <laughs> it's weird
0: because he's so refined in this film and yet the, satir- the satirican is like it's so gross
1: like well and i think this yeah. is one of the things where like the parallel that you might see with the historical Petronius and the the sort of the satiricon is that the way that things are written and Mm. that that idea of being very good with words being very clever and then we have Petronius's final letter to Nero where where he reveals the truth it's like I always thought you were a subpar singer yeah (laughs) and it's like I would never want to hear anything come out of your lips ever again, you know, yeah. and all of this kind of stuff. So he gets to this moment where he does the reveal yes, when he yes. knows he's going to take his own life. He's already got that planned out. Yeah. And to me, that's the kind of the literary echo coming in of like, you know, the person who's got that incisive way with language. Yeah.
0: Oh, and it's, it's interesting though, as well, though, in terms of characterization, because Petronius is really, the only person who's a Roman who is sympathetic but never becomes Christian. He is sympathetic to the Christians.
1: Are you telling me that Tigellinus is not sympathetic? <laughs> There's only one man with a moustache in this film oh, who's also a Roman. He's waiting for him to whip out some wax as <laughs>
0: well. Yeah, no, exactly. He's, he's the only Roman who doesn't convert to Christianity, even though he might be kind of trying to temper Nero's actions with the Christians. But that seems to be more because he's concerned about Rome's reputation. Like... And Vinicius, as you say, like it's not really like because he cares too much for these people. But yeah, he is the only person who doesn't convert. Mm. Um, you know, so it's just it's just interesting. notable. Yeah, it is it is in these sorts of films when that sort of thing happens. All right, finish up on a very light note. Let's talk about the promotion of Quo Vardis. I have mentioned this before, but Quo Vardis really takes the cake with tie Okay, How did they promote this film? How do you sell a film like Quo Vardis? Well, of course, you know, there's lots of tie-in products. Look,
1: would you take that shot from the film where they've recreated Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper Uh. part by part and put it on a postcard and be like, do you want to see how it happened? (laughs) Yeah. Because we bring it to life. Uh, Look, obviously there's the usual stuff, like, yeah, your shop windows and that kind of stuff. But there
0: was also a real estate company that used the shot of Nero Pointing to the model of Rome, they used it to sell houses. Crest Manor, I'm looking at you. They also sold raincoats, sports shirts, wallpaper, tablecloths, slippers, pajamas, boxer shorts, tie clips, and my favorite one, fire insurance.
1: (laughs) Wallpaper?
0: Yeah, I know. And not only that... But they received the Pope's blessing on the director's copy of the script.
1: Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, once the Pope has blessed the script, I think you're good to go, aren't you? I think so. And I think that's the
0: perfect note on which to end this very long episode. But you know what? It's a long film, guys. What can I say? Recommend that you go and see it. Yeah, definitely. Look, P.E. Snuff Alone is worth it. Thank you for listening to this special episode of The Partial Historians. We'd like to thank all of our Patreons for their support in allowing us to make these additional episodes, especially Nick, who specifically requested Quo Vardis. This has been part two of two episodes on Quo Vardis, and so that's a wrap, folks. Our sources and credits can be found on our website. And as a side note, if you'd like to learn more about Robert Taylor and his involvement with HUAC we suggest you check out one of our major sources for this episode, which is the fabulous You Must Remember This podcast, which has a whole series on the blacklist, including an entire episode dedicated to Robert Taylor and his wife, Barbara Stanwyck. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome.